Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, where we chat about great books with awesome authors and you, our listeners, ask the questions. I'm Tavia Kowalchuk, and today we're going to be talking about a book that moves back and forth in time. Another book that I read that has that same structure is The House Girl by Tara Conklin. We had her on our show earlier to talk about The Last Romantics, but The House Girl was her debut novel, and it's so special the way it moves back between the Civil War era and the current day. I loved talking to Tara Conklin about The Last Romantics, but I still have not read The House Girl, so I definitely need to get to that at some point. (laughs) Oh, it is such a pleasure. It's a real pleasure to read. I'm Eliza Rosenberry, and a book that I just read that moves back and forth in time is The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead, which won the Pulitzer Mm. Prize last year. This is his second Pulitzer. He also won it for the Underground Railroad. And The Nickel Boys is, it's a very short book. It's only, it's just about 200 pages. And it moves back and forth between a boy's childhood in the South and his adulthood in New York City. And it's just just a phenomenal book. And Colson Whitehead is amazing. So I highly recommend The Nickel Boys. I want to read that. On today's show, the number one New York Times bestselling historical epic, Orphan Train, about a group of young children sent west by rail with hopes for a better life in the early part of the 20th century. Later in the show, we will speak with the author, Christina Baker-Klein. And now we present to you Orphan Train Abridged. In 1920s New York City, an orphaned Irish immigrant girl named Neve is packed onto a train with other children and sent to the Midwest by a charitable organization. Families in need of help around the house or the farm will take in these children in exchange for room and board. Unfortunately, in practice, there is little oversight after the paperwork is signed, and Neve, who is renamed by each family that takes her in, first as Dorothy, then as Vivian, often finds herself in neglectful and abusive homes. She is used as child labor and withheld from school in her first home, and experiences cruelty and sexual assault in her second. Neve finally finds stability at age 11 when a kind couple whose own daughter recently died takes her in to help run their general store. Meanwhile, in present-day Maine, teenaged Molly is living in an unhappy foster home. When she's required to do community service after getting caught stealing a book from the library, Molly's one friend Jack helps set up her volunteer hours with a well-off elderly woman named Vivian. Over the course of the novel, Molly and Vivian develop a close bond, and the older woman gradually starts to share her story for the first time, of being sent west on the orphan train and the struggle she endured, as well as the memories she still has of kindnesses along the way. Told in these alternating timelines, Orphan Train is a powerful novel about family, resilience, and what we carry with us. What did you think of this special book, Eliza? Oh, such a special book. I, When this book was first published like seven years ago, I feel like it was just everywhere. It was a number one New York Times bestseller for a really long time. I feel like every so many book clubs read it uh, at the time. And to me, this idea of what we carry with us was really the thing that stood out for me the most with Orphan Train because – you know, Vivian, the main character who's in both narratives, Vivian has led a life for so long, for the first decade plus of her life, where there's no stability. 
no consistency. And she has to sort of make choices about what she takes with her when she moves from place to place, both physically, what material items or possessions she can she can carry, but also like emotionally and, and what memories she chooses to carry with her, both good and bad. Yeah, that was a very powerful part of the book. You know, for me, even though it's obvious because it's in the title, I really enjoyed the way that Christina carefully and purposefully kept coming back to the notion of what it means to be an orphan and what that experience is like. You know, each character, their experience echoes each Mm. other, but then their experiences are also very unique. I just thought that the way that Christina very gently and compassionately approached that experience was really something special. Yeah, there was one section in the book. In my copy, I have a note that it was on page 170. Vivian describes what it feels like to be at the mercy of strangers. And that, to me, just totally captured what both these women have experienced in their lives. Molly going through the foster care system and sort of being separated from her, you know, her birth parents the shared experience of having some random stranger in charge of your life when you're a child just summed it up so perfectly for me. Tagging onto what you're saying about these two women, they are echoes of each other. And I used this word earlier, and I guess it it really, for me, expresses their relationship. You know, Molly and Vivian, for example, they each have a necklace that really means something to them. They each have to mold their behavior to fit into the homes that they are at at any given time. They each learn how to be a chameleon, and they each learn to, in a way, expect that what they have will be taken away. Mm. And they're going to always need to start over again. But actually, one of the things that struck me is that the sort of systems that were set up for these placements on the orphan trains, this program evolved into what we know as the foster care system. So really, Vivian and Molly are sort of just on the same journey, just in different times. There's another echo. Yeah. All right, shall we cheers and move into our conversation with Christina? Virtual toast from far away. (sighs) Cheers. A reminder that we love to hear from you. Find us on Facebook. Our group is facebook.com slash groups slash the book club girls and on Instagram at book club girl. You can stay connected with other readers and ask questions to the authors who appear on this show and stay tuned after the show for a short exclusive sample from the audiobook of Christina Baker Klein's new novel, The Exiles. Today, we're joined by Christina Baker Klein, whose book Orphan Train is out now. Welcome, Christina, to the Book Club Girl podcast. We're so happy to have you. I'm delighted to be here. So we're going to be talking about Orphan Train today, which was a few books ago for you. So to kick things off, a member of our Facebook group, Jennifer, one question that I thought would be a good place to start, which is what made you choose this topic and this time period? I stumbled on the story of the Orphan Trains because my husband's grandfather was featured in an article in this obscure publication. It was a collection of newspaper articles from the early 20th century from a little town called Jamestown, North Dakota. They had a centennial celebration and someone put together all these articles. And the incredible thing was, as we were looking at this collection, my mother-in-law started to read the article and didn't even know that her father was featured in it along with his younger brother and three sisters. So all three of them had been orphaned and ended up 
in Jamestown on a train. And I had never heard of the orphan trains and nor had they. And they his mother, my husband's mother, still lives in Fargo, North Dakota. And this is one of those places that the trains went, but it was a surprise to them. So I knew this was a really interesting story. And the more I began to dig into it, the more I understood how big it was that a quarter of a million children were sent on trains over 75 years from the East Coast to the Midwest. Um, And it was a labor program. They were indentured or contracted and children as young as four were expected to work. So it was quite an interesting period. That's amazing. The personal connection and the fact that his family didn't know that he had been an orphan. Yeah. It's is, is astounding. You know, it was a very shameful thing at the time. And when you study a lot of historical periods like this, it's true of the novel that I just finished as well. There's often shame and secretiveness around some of these moments in history when people were at the bottom of the social ladder and mm. were ostracized or um, discriminated against. Most of the children on the orphan trains were immigrant children. Mm-hmm. And those immigrants, as as is true today, uh, immigrants coming to this country were viewed with a lot of suspicion and people thought they looked and acted and sounded different and also that they might be taking their jobs. And mm-hmm. so it was really tough to be, uh, especially at, at the time of my novel, an Irish immigrant. The Irish were particularly mm-hmm. unwanted. And so these kids, many of whom were Irish children, were going into typical sort of Scandinavian and German families in the Midwest, and they had a tough time assimilating. It took Mm -hmm. a while. But as soon as they could, they did. In other words, they wanted to fit in as quickly as possible. So they tried Mm -hmm. to lose accents, and they tried to sort of cut all ties in a way. And then it wasn't until the next generation and the generation after that, that the story started to really come out. And you showed that actually, that assimilation when Vivian um, is with her third family and she starts going to school and she's asked what her hobby is and she realizes, oh, I'm not like these other kids. And then she makes it her mission to be like them going forward. Hmm. Yeah. I loved working with that character of Vivian because she embodied so much about the orphan train experience. She, you know, she came from Ireland. She, her family died in a fire and she lived in the tenements down in lower Manhattan. I've been right there on Elizabeth Street, right exactly where she lived. In your response a little bit earlier, you said the word discrimination. And this sort of takes me actually to Molly a little bit. So she's not only in the foster care system, but she's also half Native American and from the Penobscot tribe, in fact. Why is it important for her character to carry this legacy? So I grew up in Maine. I was born in England. My parents are Southern, but we eventually moved to Maine. And I went to school in Bangor, this small town, which is about 10 miles from Indian Island, which is the reservation that I describe in the novel. It's still called Indian Island. And I had children in my classes from there. And people who lived there were sort of separate from the town of Bangor, but they were also in and out and part of it. So it was sort of intimately known to me at that world. My mother became a Maine state legislator. She was a professor of English and women's studies, and then she ran for office. And 
She and the only Native legislator ever in Maine, Donna Loring, put together all this legislation for a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And what I describe in the novel, which is that Maine is one of the only states, there are more now, but at the time I wrote the novel, in which you're required to teach education about Native tribes. Mm -hmm. You know, you're required to sort of teach a, a unit on that in history classes and social studies. And so she was really involved in that when I was beginning to write Orphan Train. And I realized that her research was super interesting and so much a part of the main story, but also, for me, a fascinating parallel with Vivian's story as an Irish immigrant at the turn of the century. This girl who was 17 in my novel who had been in and out of foster care and had a really rough time of it, felt that she had nothing in common with this kind of wealthy older woman. And the two of them together came to understand that actually they had very similar childhood experiences. Yeah, Tavi and I were just speaking before you joined about the parallels between Vivian and Molly. And I was commenting that one of the lines that stood out to me as sort of capturing this was when Vivian is sort of talking about the feeling of being at the mercy of strangers. And that to me felt like it captured both Molly's experience in the foster care system and how frustrating it was um, and difficult it was for her as well as Vivian's experience sort of being shuffled from house to house in the 20s. I wanted to ask about Vivian, who is such a complex character, who's gone through so many difficult experiences and the reader has the opportunity to know her throughout her whole life, you know, know her from the age of when the book starts, she eight or nine during the, ne- the subsequent years, and then to also know her again when she's an old woman and she's lived her whole life. And so I was wondering, how did you draw the inspiration in crafting that kind of full character? It was such a long scope of a life. <laughs> you know, when you write a novel and yeah. you suddenly realize, oh my God, I have 91 years here that I have to deal with. Um, <laughs> so part of What was useful to me was to think about the fact that it was something a real orphan train writer said to me, which was she was telling me this incredible story about her early life and everything that happened to her and all the drama she went through. And then she kind of got to a stage where she sort of had assimilated and married and was kind of in a normal life. And I said, so then what happened? And she said, darling, It doesn't matter what happened then. This is the story of my life. The rest of my life was just a normal life. (laughs) And so I was able to kind of use that because Vivian's story takes you to a certain point where there's some resolution and then you Mm -hmm. really move forward and she's suddenly, you know, on the coast of Maine and 91 years old. But it was exciting to think about this child wearing, for example, a mustard-colored coat with black buttons, and then this 91-year-old woman pulling that same coat out of a bin because I sort of tried to manifest the connections between past and present in a literal way. Mm -hmm. So you have all these objects that you see in one scene, and then they're in the other scene as well. Mm -hmm. And that gave me a grounding for the story, I think, uh, in terms of connecting those pieces. I loved the way that um, Terry and her son were encouraging Molly to get Vivian to throw everything away, like literally clear out the closet. And all that really needed to be done was it just needed to be dealt with and sorted. 
and someone needed to bear witness to it. And mm. I loved how in the end, Molly described the way that she had completed the project, talking about making it all very tangible. That was a really wonderful moment where that came to be. You're listening to the Book Club Girl podcast, where our guest this week is Christina Baker-Klein, whose book Orphan Train is out now. You can read more about Christina's books at bookclubgirl.com slash podcast. Coming up on the Book Club Girl podcast, Christina answers more questions, and later in the show, we ask about her literary white whale. Stick around. This episode of the Book Club Girl podcast is brought to you by A Piece of the World by Christina Baker-Klein. From the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Orphan Train, comes a stunning and unforgettable novel about the mysterious and iconic Andrew Wyeth painting, Christina's World, available wherever books are sold. Welcome back to the show. This episode, we're speaking with Christina Baker-Klein, author of Orphan Train. I want to go back to Vivian as an old woman. Why do you think she chooses to share her story with Molly when she hasn't shared it with anyone else before? Vivian was such a fun character as an old woman to create. And by the way, there um, do you guys know that Helen Mirren has signed on to play Vivian um, in, no. in the oh my God. movie, which I think would be perfect. Wow, I can see it. I can picture it. As you know, she's 91. And in the movie, the way they're doing it is Helen Mirren is not that old. So they would set it in the 90s. So the present day would be in the in the 90s. So now when I think of Vivian, I kind of think of Helen Mirren. <laughs> but um, <laughs> she, I think she befriended Molly because she has this very wry, slightly caustic, sense of humor and personality. And the minute Molly came in the door, they kind of butted heads a little bit. Vivian was asking her very pointed questions and Molly was giving it right back. And it cut through for both of them a lot of the social niceties. You know, Vivian's been kind of isolated. She doesn't really have other friends. She has a housekeeper who she doesn't understand her exactly. And the situation just seemed perfect to me that Vivian would feel this kinship with her and also kind of mother her in a way, give her Mm. some advice. You know, in the movie version, what they're talking about doing right now, I don't know if the script will change, but is that Vivian has a little bookshop in town. And when Molly steals the book, she is the one who catches her, which I thought was a very interesting, it was like, maybe I should have thought of that. (laughs) (laughs) Very clever. Christina, I wanted to ask you, Orphan Train was published, I think, in 2013, so about seven years ago. And so, you know, we were curious all this time later, looking back on the book, is there, do you have a favorite scene or a favorite part, or is there anything that sort of stands out to you that you feel differently about it now than you did at the time? Just curious um, what that feels like to look back. That's such a good question. Um, There are a lot of ways to answer that question, but I want to focus on one thing, which is that without giving away a sort of significant thing that happens, when I wrote the book, I don't think anyone was anticipating that it would take off the way it did, and it had a very wide readership, and so I got lots and lots of responses to it. And there's something that happens two-thirds of the way or three-quarters of the way through the book that shocked a lot of people. And I got so many responses of people saying, well, how could this happen? That I told my editor, Kate Ninzel at 
William Morrow, that I wanted to add to the scene. And she's like, that's ridiculous. You're never doing that. That's absurd. And then a couple of years later, they decided to do a new edition of Orphan Train with some other stuff in it. And she said, knock yourself out. You can do whatever you want. So I re-edited the entire book because I'm ridiculous. And (laughs) I added this other scene. And so here's what's interesting to me about this experience. I added the other scene where I kind of answered the questions um, that people might have had about it and sort of anticipated that response. And now I'm not sure I should have done that. It's so interesting because I actually have to confess that I think that I've only read the edition of the book where you made the update. I haven't read the original version to compare and contrast. There's no reason you should. But I do think um, <laughs> the people who read the original version and are like, this is how I made sense of it. It's uh, it's sort of a little bit more work to mm. do it. But, you know, I don't know. So some people do read both and report back on their experience of it. Another member of our Facebook group, Renee, wanted to know, what do you hope readers take away from Orphan Train? Mm, Well, there's a great article in The New Yorker by Jill Lepore called Just the Facts, Ma'am. And it's about, she says, fiction does what history should but doesn't, which is to tell the stories of ordinary people Mm. and to sort of give you a granular glimpse into lives that are not your own in a way that make those lives come alive. And so my task in Orphan Train was to shine a spotlight on the lives of poor and dispossessed people who are often in the shadows. These train riders' stories were not widely known, and I hope I've done some small part to make this movement of train riders, as I say, more broadly known. It's not in Mm -hmm. our social studies books, and it just hasn't been a part of American history because history is written by the winners and by you know, the generals Mm. and the presidents and uh, the lawmakers and not by people who've been, as I said at the beginning, on the fringes of society. So Mm -hmm. these are the kinds of stories that I'm interested in telling. And then Jill Lepore goes on in that New Yorker article to say, history is not the story of ordinary men. And she says, and who are those ordinary men? Well, many of them are women, (laughs) which which I think is true. If you're looking at a hierarchy of of who tells the story and who gets their stories Mm -hmm. told. So one more question from our community. Linda wants to know if you have considered writing a sequel to Orphan Train and slash or, but I hope and, can you tell us about your next book? I... Probably will not write a sequel to Orphan Train, but I did just contribute a 20-page story to an anthology that's coming out this fall called Tales from Suffragette City. It's about one day in New York when there's a giant march to get women the vote. That's a real day that happened in 1915. And I think there are 10 writers who contributed to it. And mine is about an Orphan Train writer who ends up in this parade or going to this parade. And then my new novel, The Exiles, it's coming out soon, is the story of the convict women who transformed Australia and the indigenous people whose lives were forever changed when the colonists landed on their shores. Wow. So it's kind of this epic story, like Orphan Train, in the way that Orphan Train was an epic story. It's kind of a big story. It spans a lot of time and it has this 
little known story of the convict women and uh, this Aboriginal girl who really lived. It was fun to do. And every story in it is very different from the last. So it's an interesting collection. Great. Well, we have one more question for you. And it's a question we ask all of our guests at the end of every episode. What is your literary white whale? And so that's a book that you've either always meant to read or something you started reading and just haven't gotten around to finishing. Well, fittingly, and I would guess other people say this as well, um, <laughs> Moby Dick is <laughs> is that book because my husband loved it and was obsessed with it. I don't know why I have a mental block against that book, but I think if I had to mention one during the time of COVID, it would probably be War and Peace because so many of my friends mm-hmm. are reading it. And if there's any time to read it, it would be now. And to be honest with you, I have no interest. You are in very good company with your white whales. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, it was so wonderful to talk to you. I was bursting with questions about Orphan Train. Thank you so much for indulging us with answering all of our questions. I'm sure you've heard them millions of times before, but I can't wait to share this podcast with our listeners and just get them excited about Orphan Train again and about the exiles. Thank you so much for coming on our show. You guys are amazing. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. That was Christina Baker-Klein, whose book, Orphan Train, is out now. To find out more about Christina's books and how to buy them, head to bookclubgirl.com slash podcast, where you can also find links to everything mentioned in this episode. Like what you heard? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, give us a rating and leave a review. Another way to help spread the word about the Book Club Girl podcast tell a friend. It really helps others to find us. You will hear from us again in two weeks when we'll be speaking with Meg Cabot about her romance novel, No Judgments. But you can always stay in touch with us in between episodes. We're both on Instagram. Find us at Tavia Reads and at Eliza is Reading. And of course, at Book Club Girl. You can join in our conversations too. Later this month, we are interviewing Gregory Maguire about his classic novel, Wicked. It's the 25th anniversary of its publication. Wow. I can't believe it's been, sorry to interrupt you, but I truly cannot believe it's been 25 years. That's I amazing. know. I remember when I read that book when it first came out. I'm so Oops, excited. I shouldn't have admitted how old I am. Okay. <laughs> If you have questions for Gregory, you can post them in the comments on our Book Club Girls Facebook group or call us at 212-207-7336 and leave a question for him about Wicked. You can also send us an email, thegirls at bookclubgirl.com. We'd love to hear from you and we'll send you a free book if we ask your question on the show. Before we go, a big thank you to Charles de Montebello, who produced today's episode, and to Christina Baker-Klein, who set up her own recording equipment at home. Until next time, I'm Tavia. And I'm Eliza. Happy reading. By the time the rains came, Mathena had been hiding in the bush for nearly two days. She was eight years old, and the most important thing she'd ever learned was how to disappear. Since she was old enough to walk, she'd explored every nook and crevice of Waibalena, the remote point on Flinders Island where her people had been exiled since before she was born. She'd run along the granite ridge that extended across the tops of the hills, 
dug tunnels in the sugary dunes on the beach, played seek and find among the scrub and shrubs. She knew all the animals, the possums and wallabies and kangaroos, the paddy melons that lived in the forest and only came out at night, the seals that lolled on rocks and rolled into the surf to cool off. Three days earlier, Governor John Franklin and his wife, Lady Jane, had arrived at Waibalena by boat, more than 250 miles from their residence on the island of Lutruwita, or Van Diemen's Land, as the white people called it. Mathina stood with the other children on the ridge as the governor and his wife made their way up from the beach, accompanied by half a dozen servants. Lady Franklin had a hard time walking in her shiny satin shoes. She kept slipping on the stones. She clung to her husband's arm as she wobbled toward them, the expression on her face as sour as if she'd bitten an artichoke thistle. The wrinkles on her neck reminded Mathina of the exposed pink flesh of a wattle bird. The night before, the Palawa elders had sat around the campfire discussing the impending visit. The Christian missionaries had been preparing for days. The children had been instructed to learn a dance. Mathina sat in the darkness on the edge of the circle, as she often did, listening to the elders talk as they plucked feathers from mutton birds and roasted mussels in the glowing embers. The Franklins, it was widely agreed, were impulsive, foolish people. Stories abounded of their strange and eccentric schemes. Lady Franklin was deathly afraid of snakes. She'd once devised a plan to pay a shilling for every dead snake turned in, which naturally spawned a robust market of breeders and cost her and Sir John a small fortune. When the two of them had visited Flinders the previous year, it was to collect Aboriginal skulls for their collection, skulls that were obtained by decapitating corpses and boiling the heads to remove the flesh. The horse-faced Englishman in charge of the settlement on Flinders, George Robinson, lived with his wife in a brick house in a semicircle of eight brick houses that included rooms for his men, a sanatorium, and a dispensary. 